check, check, check. Okay, we're rolling. Okay, so can you um, tell me your name and introduce yourself? My name is Leslie Ann Boyce, and I'm an attorney. I recently met up with Leslie Boyce. She's a criminal defense attorney. She does a lot of work on murder cases. She tries them. She appeals them. She spends a lot of time with people accused and convicted of murder. Why did you get into law? Why did I get into law? Now, that's a, that's a big question. Um, I think I'm driven by a sense of justice. I see justice in little things and in big things. And so eventually my meandering path brought me to law school. I was sitting down with her because we have a mutual friend. This friend of mine, her name's Heather. She's a true crime podcast addict. And one day, over lunch in downtown Los Angeles, she said to me, Ben, you have got to meet my friend Leslie. She's got one of the wildest stories I have ever heard. Well, the person who became my client, who I represented in an appeal, was a family man, a father who had probably the misfortune to live in the same apartment building as a gruesome crime that was committed back in 2003, a triple homicide. A mother, a two-year-old child, and his nanny all shot execution style and left in their bathroom in an apartment in Koreatown. The crimes were called the Miracle Mile Murders or the Miracle Mile Massacre, depending on who you ask. And there are just so many crazy, weird details. There were so many unanswered questions. It's macabre. These were really gruesome facts. There was no motive. Nobody wants to hear a case in which a, a child is killed execution style, and that is how it appeared. So I was fascinated by the case. One of the parts that was most fascinating to me was the location, Koreatown. LA's Koreatown is gigantic. You start seeing signs in Korean just west of downtown, and they go for miles to just south of Hollywood. It's one of the most densely populated parts of the city, one of the most densely populated parts of the country, actually. Big apartment buildings, big office buildings. It's the part of LA that looks the most like an East Coast city, Except, you know, the signs are all in Korean. But more than that, Koreatown sits sort of apart from Los Angeles. The karaoke places, the restaurants, the bars, the businesses, they're all open to everybody. But you know when you go there that you're just kind of missing something if you're not speaking Korean. So next, I called Sharon Choi on Zoom. Hey, Sharon. Hey, Ben. So, Sharon, you live in Seoul, South Korea, but you spent a lot of time in Koreatown in Los Angeles, right? Yeah. So I was pretty much born and raised in South Korea, but my parents moved to L.A. when I was around seven. And we stayed there for two years. Um, I was kind of your classic immigrant kid, completely thrown into a new culture and language. And then um, I moved back to L.A. for college, USC. Sharon got kind of famous when she was the interpreter for Bong Joon-ho. He's the director of the movie Parasite. And when he was in L.A. winning the Oscars for Best Picture and Best Director and going on all the talk shows, Sharon was by his side, interpreting his words for English-speaking audiences. 
in very subtle and accurate ways. 장벽도 아니죠. 한 1인치 정도 되는 그 장벽을 뛰어넘으면 여러분들이 훨씬 더 많은 영화를 즐길 수 있습니다. Once you overcome the one-inch tall barrier of subtitles, you will be introduced to so many more amazing films. <laughs> I knew that if we wanted to get to the bottom of anything with this case, we'd need an expert in Korea and America. Someone who's culturally adept, linguistically fluent, and smart. Very smart. So let me ask you this, Sharon. I've been to Koreatown plenty of times. You've lived in Koreatown. How is the Koreatown that you visit different than the one I experience? Well, I just have access to the community instantly, almost. As soon as I walk in a place and say, 안녕하세요, instead of hello, their faces change and they just open up. How do their faces change? You see them feeling relieved that they don't have to speak English to someone, <laughs> that they can just talk to someone in their mother language. Sharon seemed like the perfect person to investigate this case. So what do you know about the Miracle Mile massacre? Yeah, I, I remember hearing about it and it's a really crazy crime, right? That happened in 2003. I was here with my parents then. I was pretty young, didn't really know much about it. It happened on May 5th. 2003. It was a Monday, and sometime in the late afternoon, around 4.30 or 5, people living at the Renaissance Apartments in Koreatown suddenly heard a woman screaming for help. Panicked, they called 911. Before the police arrived, one resident went down to the manager's office and brought her and a maintenance man back up to the fourth floor where the woman, an older woman named Cosmos Chang, was still screaming. Cosmos pulled the manager and the maintenance man into the apartment where they found a woman lying on the floor of the bathroom, bound, gagged, and shot to death. The woman was Cherise Song, Cosmos Chang's 30-year-old daughter. And lying in the bathtub next to Cherise was her two-year-old son and the family's nanny, Unsuk Min, each of whom had also been shot and killed. It was an act of horrible violence, and it shook Koreatown to its core. The murders were so sort of graphic and unusual. Just the very fact that it involved a two-year-old boy, his mother, and his church-going nanny. She's in that apartment, and everyone's dead. She doesn't even know it until she walks into the bathroom. We have DNA from the victim, your DNA, on our victim. That's why you're here. You're not leaving here today. You understand that? A triple homicide with these types of methods was, I think, striking for L.A., not, not just anybody who's Korean. Yeah, it was on Korean newspaper everywhere. It struck the Korean-American community in a profound way. I'm Ben Adair. I'm an investigative journalist specializing in criminal justice podcasts. And I'm Sharon Choi. I'm a filmmaker and an interpreter. This is Strangeland, the Koreatown murders.
This is episode one, The Miracle Mile Massacre. So to understand how this crime is different, how Koreatown is different, you have to sort of understand how the lives of immigrants are different. Imagine everything around you changing overnight. The buildings, the smell, the food, the language, the people, everything. Not only do you have to adjust your five senses, you also have to relearn how to be an adult in these new systems. It's a scary process. So it's no wonder why so many immigrant communities form their own towns. I remember one of my favorite spots in Koreatown was this one store called Kimbanga. It makes and sells rice cakes, and it looks like it was lifted up out of 1987 Seoul and placed on the corner of Olympic and Normandy. It was like I was flown back in time to a Korea I never got to witness. In Koreatown, the signs and the food are completely Korean. But the buildings and streets are 100% LA. It's a place where Korean immigrants can forget that they're perpetual outsiders. Somewhere that's similar to their homeland. Because life as an immigrant can be very strange. That's actually where the name of this show comes from. America can seem like a strange place. And when immigrants get caught up in crimes and the criminal justice system, things get even stranger. And as we learned more about the Koreatown murders, it became very clear, very quickly, that the name Strangeland fits perfectly. So this crime happened a little while ago, 2003. But like all murder cases, the evidence and case files have been preserved. So there's a ton of information to go through in court documents, exhibit rooms, and evidence lockers. So let's start at the very beginning, the crime scene and the victims. Here's what I've been able to learn. The Songs were a family of four Korean immigrants. The husband's name is Pyeongchul Song, and his wife was Churi Song. Pyeong Song worked and works in the clothing industry. At the time, he owned a clothing factory and a storefront in LA's garment district downtown. They had two kids. The older son was four years old at the time of the murders, and the younger son, the victim, was two. They lived in a two-bedroom apartment on the fourth floor of their building. It's a huge complex that spans block to block, right near the La Brea Tar Pits on the western edge of Koreatown. That distinct part of town is called Miracle Mile, which is where the name the Miracle Mile Massacre comes from. So the front door of the apartment opened onto the living room and balcony. There's a small kitchen to the right. To the left of the front door was the dining room and a hallway that led to the bedrooms and bathrooms. Here, through court records, I managed to get a bunch of photos of the apartment. So I'm clicking through the photos you sent. Um, yeah, it's looking like a pretty standard middle-class apartment. Big TV, there's a piano, leather furniture. It's nice. Yeah, it looks like your classic Korean household. Every Korean household has a piano. And it just looks like a completely normal middle-class apartment. 
The Song's two kids slept in the same bedroom at the end of the hall, while their parents' bedroom was next to the living room, closer to the front door. You know, Sharon, these photos, this doesn't look like a crime scene. There's nothing disturbed or out of order. That's because everything happened in the bathroom. So, in the afternoon on May 5th, 2003, the first two LAPD officers arrived at the scene. They found the three bodies in the bathroom and immediately requested paramedics. They alerted their sergeant that they needed crime scene preservation and investigation. Oh, Jesus. Okay, so, yeah, these are obviously very difficult to look at. There are the three bodies and just blood everywhere. Two bodies are in the bathtub, the two-year-old, clearly, and the nanny, Yunsuk Men. The mother, Cheri Song, she's on the bathroom floor. Her feet are kind of straddling the toilet, and she has what looks like duct tape around her head, mouth, and wrists. Mm. Eventually, detectives from LAPD's Robbery and Homicide Division got there and went to work. According to court documents, LAPD Detective Robert Bubb arrived at the crime scene at 9.15 p.m. to assist in the investigation. Police detectives did not find any broken doors or windows. There wasn't any sign of ransacking inside the apartment, either. So Ben, let me show you a couple more photos. This is the closet in the master bedroom. You can see there's jewelry on the floor, taken from the unstolen jewelry box. And do you see that circle toward the bottom? It's around a suitcase. Inside the suitcase are certificates of deposit reflecting tens of thousands of dollars in various accounts. Another photo shows a Gucci watch on the wrist of one of the victims. Hmm, so it doesn't sound like a financial motive. Another LAPD investigator collected a bullet fragment from the clothing of the two-year-old, as well as some hair that didn't seem to belong to him or the other victims. They also removed the tape that was used to tie up the mother and found parts of what appeared to be a latex glove stuck to the tape. In all, four latex pieces were recovered from the tape applied to the face of the victim, and one piece was recovered from the tape used to bind the victim's wrists. Huh, so it's like the killer was wearing latex gloves to try to, you know, not leave fingerprints, protect their identity, and then pieces of the glove came off in the tape? Hold on, let me pull up a photo for you. Oh, wow, these are big pieces of glove. Like, it's hard to imagine losing these in the course of committing a crime and not noticing. This is, it seems like this is really good evidence that the cops are collecting. What do they do next? Eventually, the LAPD estimates the time of death, and this gets interesting. First, they take the temperatures of the bodies. This happens at 5.26 a.m., the day after the murders, and they find that the boy and the nanny had lost 21 and 22 degrees. So that would correspond to a time of death on May 5th between 6.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. But the mother had only lost 19 degrees, meaning she died later, sometime between 8 a.m. and noon. Next, they measure rigor mortis, and this confirms that the boy and the nanny died at roughly the same time. But the LAPD estimates that the mother died between 30 and 60 minutes later. Huh, so that means whoever did this killed the first two 
and then kept the mother alive for up to an hour? Or maybe waited for her to come home and then killed her? There's more. This is, again, from court documents. Quote, A crime scene analyst also noted that if the murder was staged to be a burglary, there would be ransacking and manufactured breakage to the entryway. They had investigated professional hits, and the facts did not match such a situation since a professional would only aim to kill the person targeted. So the crime scene doesn't look like a robbery. It doesn't look like a staged robbery, and it doesn't look like a professional hit. Where do the detectives even go from there? We're going to get to that after the break. So, detectives first turned their attention to the person closest to the victims, Pyeongchul Song, the husband and father. Right, this makes sense, given the fact that one in two female murder victims are killed by their intimate partners, according to the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence. So, believe it or not, no one had notified Song about the murders. The cops did this on purpose, because they wanted to carefully watch his reactions. He arrived at home to find it all cordoned off with police tape. This is Victoria Kim. She's now the Seoul South Korea correspondent for the Los Angeles Times. But before that, she covered Koreatown. I should mention here that we contacted Pyong Song, and he did not want to be interviewed for this podcast. But Victoria Kim did cover the story, and did talk to Song back then. I remember him telling me about, um, you know, having his hands tested for gunpowder residue. And throughout the night, he was held at the police station and questioned. The police didn't tell Song why he was being questioned or what had happened to his family. He told the police he had last seen his wife that morning when she left the office of his clothing factory. I think largely he painted a picture of a pretty typical Korean immigrant existence, ups and downs in terms of money, successes and failures. Toward the end of their interview with Song, detectives finally told him his wife and youngest child were dead. Then they watched his reaction. Detective Brian McCartan was the LAPD's lead detective on the case. He said, quote, he was too stoic. There was really no reaction whatsoever. A while later, he broke down and started crying on the floor. But when he found out, nothing. LAPD released Hong around dawn, but their investigation was only just beginning. So where do they start? First, with the husband's alibi. They start asking Song's co-workers about his whereabouts and his behavior on the day of the murders. According to employees, Song arrived at his storefront at 7.30 in the morning. He did a fitting with one of the models and then left around 8 a.m. Then he arrived at the clothing factory sometime between 8.30 and 9 a.m. He made another trip back to his storefront at 10 a.m. and stayed there for about 15 minutes before returning to the factory. Most of the time after that, Song was in the presence of employees at his factory. Around 3 or 3.30 p.m., he and another employee left to go scout for clothing at the Beverly Center, a big, trendy mall near West Hollywood. They stayed there until around 5.30 p.m. 
Hmm, so that covers his whereabouts. According to these employees, he was with them all day. But what did they say about his demeanor? Was he nervous? Was he preoccupied? How was he acting? He was acting normal. Song's employees said that he appeared fine on the day of the murders. He wasn't acting differently or doing anything out of the ordinary. So what did the detectives do next? Detectives interviewed him again on May 7th, two days after the murders. The next day, May 8th, he accompanied two detectives on a walkthrough of his apartment. According to the detectives, Song said he didn't find anything missing from the apartment. And he, quote, appeared to have been grieving and was having emotional difficulty during the walkthrough. So the detectives are seeing behavior that's pretty much how a distraught father should be behaving. Well, about a week later, something very strange happened. I'm going to read to you from this other document. Quote, On May 16, 2003, the LAPD Robbery Homicide Division received a typewritten letter in the mail. It stated, and I'm going to read this verbatim, Song's husband have a young girlfriend. That's why they had arguments so much. He sent her to New York last month and will be back in July. Husband hired guys from Korea to be free from wife and guys went to Korea last week. I do not know how much he paid for the service to guys from Korea. To find out more, call Scott Song and Jay Lee." Unquote. Okay, so maybe I take it back. They should investigate the husband a little more now. Yeah, and just to go a little deeper on this, this letter was typed on a typewriter, not printed from a computer, a typewriter. And then it was photocopied. Also, the third and fourth sentences were in all caps. He sent her to New York last month and will be back in July. Husband hired guys from Korea to be free from wife and guys went to Korea last week. The rest was regular type. Okay, and then to find out more, call Scott Song, Jay Lee. Scott Song might be related to Byung Song and Jay Lee. Do we have any idea who these people are? Again, this is all according to court documents. Quote, Detective McCartan attempted to find out who Scott Song and Jay Lee were. He checked state and nationwide databases such as DMV and fingerprint systems, airlines and passenger information, and the immigration and naturalization services. But he could not locate these individuals. Hmm, but what about the other stuff in the letter, the all-caps girlfriend who was apparently sent to New York? We'll get to that. Remember, there was a lot of evidence collected at the crime scene. So while LAPD was investigating the tip letter, they were still working on investigating the rest of this case too. So a few days after the murder, they submitted the pieces of latex glove fragments to a forensics lab for DNA analysis. Then on May 22nd, detectives canvassed the apartment complex for possible eyewitnesses, but they didn't find anyone. No one heard gunshots or saw anything out of the ordinary on the day of the murders. No one heard or saw anything? Sharon, do you think this is like maybe like immigrants not trusting outsiders, the cops, or do you think no one really heard anything? I don't really think it's a cultural thing. I think people would have said something if they noticed anything that extreme. Okay, but what about Song? It seems like he's still the only suspect. So detectives had impounded the Song's cars, a BMW 540 sedan, 
as well as a BMW SUV. Two criminalists searched the cars for evidence, but didn't find anything of particular importance. Seems like they're not coming up with much to make this case. Not yet, but they keep digging and digging and digging. And almost a month after the murders, the LAPD finally makes a big move. And that's coming up right after the break. So you mentioned this earlier, but it's worth repeating. Even though Koreatown is a huge community, it's incredibly insular, and people like to talk. There's not one, but two newspapers published in Korean, every day except Sunday. So this case was huge news in Koreatown, and the coverage was just terrible. Lots of personal details about the victims. I don't even want to read you the headlines because it's just so petty and personal. But what happened next really got the community talking. On June 3rd, 2003, almost a month after the murders, LAPD detectives made a big move against the husband and father of the murder victims, Pyeong Char Song. His business was raided. Again, this is Victoria Kim from the LA Times. He had a clothing wholesale business in the garment district in downtown that at some point was 70 or 80 percent Korean. Police came and served a search warrant and carted away boxes of things. And there were photos of this all over the front pages of the Korean newspapers. And it's a tight-knit community. It's a tight-knit business community. And I think it was a very public search warrant situation. As part of the raid, Song's computer was seized and searched, along with his cell phone records. What did the police find in all that data? Well, perhaps this is going to be surprising, but they didn't find anything of investigative value. Not on the computer, not on his cell phone, not in any of the boxes and boxes taken away. In fact, even more than that, according to court documents, a surveillance team followed Song for about a month. They even surveilled his brother. But, quote, nothing useful came from the surveillance. Hmm. But as Victoria mentioned, that didn't stop the media in Koreatown from aggressively writing about the case, reporting on the victims' funerals, unverified rumors about the Song's finances, and even accosting the surviving son for interviews. Remember, he was four. I think some of the detectives might have even said this in testimony, that the Korean media called incessantly about this case for the first couple of months. Just calling back, saying, like, any developments, any developments, any developments, every single day. But also, you know, when it seemed like there were no breakthroughs, um, writing very frequently about the lack of breakthroughs. And it wasn't just the media. The case occupied a huge place within the communal psyche in Koreatown. Yeah, I remember um, the Catholic church I went to. It was part of the sermon. This is Edward Park. He's a professor and the chair of the Department of Asian and Asian American Studies at Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles. And the part of the sermon was, you know, in the pursuit of the American dream, we should not lose sight of our own moral character and our own responsibility to community. 
So there was a very real split happening in the Korean community at this time, and it revolved around the types of opportunities that were available for Korean immigrants and the American-born children of immigrants, everyone who had come here to escape poverty in South Korea. In the early 1970s, as these pioneering immigrants settled in Los Angeles, they quickly understood that there were great economic opportunities in this city. And partially due to its location, and also because many in the community were already familiar with the work, the garment industry became a hotspot for Korean immigrants. The garment industry itself provided opportunities for people to start as like seamstresses, work their way up into, you know, supervisors, and then even subcontractors uh, to be able to own your own business. For most people working in the industry, it's really hard. Long hours, low pay, at the time, usually below minimum wage. Not everybody survives in that business. But according to Victoria Kim, Pyeongchar Song didn't just survive in the garment industry. He became very successful. I remember him telling me that he had sort of worked his way up from, um, you know, just like working as a box boy like on stock, like in this um, industry, and obviously had um, gone from there to running his own businesses. He seemed to have established himself as a respected figure. You know, this is a very aspirational community, and there was a great deal of um, celebration of people who, who made it. But people who didn't make it were rendered almost like invisible within the community. And so I think there's a great deal of envy, maybe, or jealousy, or, you know, feelings of exploitation, right, among those folks who, you know, this wealth was built on their backs. Okay, Sharon, I think I see where you're going here. Jung Song was someone maybe known in the community as someone who'd made it. He had his own business, had two BMWs. You think he might have been targeted because of his wealth? According to Professor Park, some people in Koreatown believed that. I think it struck a chord with this feeling there is a desperate part of the community that is angry and resentful and envious of all of that. But still, it's hard to believe, given all the things left in the apartment, the jewelry, the certificates of deposit, the fact that nothing really was missing at all. And again, this is a brutal crime. It's horrifying. Not just the wife, the nanny, the two-year-old. Yeah. So, as the murders were reverberating across Koreatown, LAPD continued its investigation of Song, and he was generally cooperative. On June 23, 2003, Song came to the police station and, quote, turned over other items of evidence to Detective McCartan. Then, on July 17th, Song voluntarily submitted a full set of fingerprints and saliva samples. Right, because the LAPD was testing the latex glove fragments from the crime scene for DNA. But the results came back negative for Song. There were two sets of DNA profiles on the gloves. One belonged to Cherie Song, 
who'd been bound with a tape that held the latex glove fragments. The other profile came up as unknown. Hmm, so, again, nothing. You know, this is, this is incredibly frustrating, this investigation so far. But the cops did figure one thing out. Okay, good. Again, quoting from court documents, quote, At some point, Detective McCartan discovered that Song was having an affair with a designer at his clothing factory. He interviewed the designer and her husband and obtained saliva samples and fingerprints from him. Detective McCartan also attempted to check the designer's work records to see if she could be the killer. But, quote, that investigation did not lead to any discoveries. So even with that strange tip note, even with the names on it, the cops still aren't getting anywhere. So after all this, the case started to go cold. Detectives weren't able to find anything, really, tying the murders to Pyeongsong. His alibi held up to police scrutiny. His DNA didn't match with any of the samples found at the crime scene. And nothing from the raids on his businesses generated any new productive leads. But the papers in Koreatown were still writing and writing about it. And according to Victoria Kim, Pyeongsong wasn't able to escape suspicion within the Koreatown community. I do think he felt that vague suspicion very acutely, and some of it could have been um, him, you know, feeling it was there when it wasn't. But I, th- I think the headlines and some of, uh, because you know, they were members of a, uh, a Korean church community, and those communities tend to be very tight knit. Um, I think he did feel that um, general cloud of suspicion directed towards him. According to the LAPD, after exhausting all leads, the investigation came to a stop in 2005. So it seems like this is the time in the show where we turn to the audience and give you guys a phone number and ask for help if anyone has any information. No. No, it's not. Not by a long shot. A few years later, a new lead emerges. New information that will take this case and the investigation in a totally different, totally new direction. As part of a policy in the state of California, people convicted of crimes, misdemeanors and felonies, whether a plea deal or a jury trial, must submit a sample of their DNA to authorities. These DNA samples, thousands and thousands of them every year, are run through law enforcement databases to see if they match any DNA collected as evidence in other cases. So the DNA evidence that was found on those latex glove fragments? In 2008, there's a match. And you're not going to believe who it is. A neighbor in the same apartment building as the victims. A struggling, first-generation Korean immigrant who happened to park in the parking space right next to the Songs a man named Robin Cho. How his story intersects with the Songs and the LAPD investigators trying to solve this triple murder? That's on the next episode of Strangeland. I just want to know why you did it, Mr. Cho. That's been bugging me for six years. Looking at you, I can't believe you would do it, something like that. You're, you're just not the type of person. Did they piss you off or something? 
Did they get so angry? You got so angry that in a fit of rage you shot these people for some reason? Did somebody pay you to do it? Why did you do it? That's all I want to know, Mr. Cho. That's the only question I'll ask. I want you to answer and I'll leave. Why did you do it? The next episode of Strangeland, produced by Western Sound, starts right now. <laughs>